Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. Spirits. The circumstances that are going on at the time cannot in any way uh, douse the flame of happiness that he has as a result of these other things that are going on in his life. Actually, the rain actually adds to the scene. Somehow, because of him, it makes it happier that it's raining. Let me ask you, what makes you that happy? Is there anything in your life that, or some things that have happened in your life that there's no way, there's nothing, you cannot rain on my parade, if you will, right? You cannot make me sad. I'm a happy person because of maybe a newborn grandchild, maybe a big promotion, uh, maybe uh, your team won, maybe whatever it is. There's, there's things in our lives, nothing can dampen it. But that's not how we always live, is it? not how we always live. Sometimes we live in a state of, I just don't know, maybe things are good today, but what about tomorrow? I don't know. I'm okay today, I've got enough today, but I don't know about tomorrow, what's going to happen tomorrow? Maybe things won't be as good. You live life in suspense, almost, worried, and I can be this way, Julie will tell you, please don't though, honey. Um, I can be this way, well, things are good now, what about tomorrow? It's always funny that when we come up with some idea for our family to do it, Julie would be excited to do it, and let's just do it. Let's go do it. It's going to be great. And I'm like, yeah, but how are we going to pay for that? I rain on the parade all the time. You have that, somebody has that role in your, in your house, right? Otherwise, you're bankrupt. But you know what? There's one thing. That circumstances should never be able to dampen. There's one thing that should never, that, that the happiness of knowing Jesus should never be able to be put out by some circumstances of life. Our faith, our faith, no matter how bad the suffering, the joy that our faith brings should never go out. And that's what we're talking about today in Acts chapter 16. And the title of our message is, Not Singing in the Rain, but singing in the chains, singing in the chains, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. And as we're reading this, I want you to think about what are the chains in your life? Where is the imprisonment? Where is the suffering? Where is the unfairness in your life? And we're going to hopefully deal with that today. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. The word of the Lord says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Let me just pause there for a moment. Now, here's what would happen. People say, well, are fortune-tellers real? And I kind of like to go to fortune-tellers. I don't look at my hand. And I like to go to Key West, sunset, the Sundown Festival. If you've ever been there, there's always much fortune-tellers there. Don't know why. Just part of the thing. This is a very dangerous thing. It's not silly. You need to stay away from this. You go, is it real? It's demonic. These are not God's spirits that are giving you the future. These are Satan's spirits. They want to draw you in. They want to distract you. 
So there was a slave girl and her owners, she had owners, um, and she was making them a lot of money. Because in those days in Rome, they really leaned heavily into this kind of thing. And they felt like you really, before you went to battle, their leaders would, would call in a fortune teller and tell them what to expect. So they were very tied into this. And so it was very acceptable and people made a lot of money, as actually they do today. And so the slave girl was a fortune teller, verse 17. She followed Paul and us. Remember, this is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke at this point, the author, uh, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, here's what's happening. Remember, Paul was, they're in Philippi. This is the first city in the continent of Europe. The, the gospel has moved west. It's, God had called them with the Macedonian call. God had directed them there. And they arrive there and they get to Philippi and, and there's no synagogue. There's no place where Jewish people would gather. And so there was a place out by the river, outside the city, that they would go and they would pray. And this is where Paul met Lydia. We talked about this last week, this um, wealthy, powerful homeowner, had a household woman that she came to Jesus and was baptized, the very first recorded baptism in the continent of Europe, in the West, if you will. And so they would go there regularly, maybe every day, certainly every Sabbath day, and they would go and they would pray with this new developing church, meeting probably underneath a tree, much like our church in Jamaica is doing this morning. And she would cry out, but this, this slave girl began to follow them around. And it happened many days. And she would say to them, she would shout out this phrase, these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, that sounds pretty good to us, right? That sounds like she is calling attention to what God is doing in Paul and the mission team. There's a problem, though. In those days, the Most High referred to not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to Zeus, the leader of the Greek pantheon. And so it became very distracting. And when they said that they proclaimed you the way of salvation, well, salvation, that term in those days, that was claimed by a lot of leaders. Caesar would be the rescuer. He's the one who saves the people. That was a common theme in those days. So it got to be very confusing. It didn't proclaim Jesus. That's why we really like to use the name Jesus. Because people can refer to all kinds of gods, but Jesus is the one true God, right? The Trinitarian God, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, that's who we're talking about. We're not just talking about any God. Our culture will refer to God so many times, and you don't know who they're talking about, really. Unless they invoke the name of Jesus. 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 And so this was a problem, and so Paul finally said, you know what, there comes a time when we have to deal with evil. And that's true for our church as well. Paul's like, this is becoming disruptive in me ministering to people. It's becoming confusion, confusing. I'm going to have to stop and deal with this. And he's probably thinking, he's probably thinking every day, is this a big enough deal that I need to deal with it? I need to take the time? Or, in fact, can I just go on and just ignore it? We always, you probably have this question pop up a lot. Do I really need to deal with this? Or is it just 
It's just going to take more time and call more attention to the enemy. And that's a question you have to answer. But she kept on and kept on and kept on. And finally, Paul says, I have to deal with this. It happens in our church. We don't deal with every little problem. We don't deal with every little sin. Praise, praise God. But when a sin becomes big enough that it's a problem for the witness of Christ, we absolutely deal with it. And so Paul stops. He looks at her. And he casts the demon out of her. Removes the demon by the power of the Most High, Jesus Christ. I love that. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, that's a problem. We're making a lot of money off her. When they saw that their hope of gain was gone, when Paul broke their fortune-telling machine, if you will, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. Now, the marketplace, known as the Agora, was a place where you would gather, and that's where the magistrates, that's where the government kind of was, this big kind of an open market. They dragged them before the magistrates, the rulers of the city, and they said three things. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as a Roman to accept or practice. Now, let me pause there. They, notice what they say. We're dragging in Paul and Silas, and apparently they left um, uh, Timothy and Luke behind. It's just Paul and Silas at this point. And they drag them in, and they say, there's three things wrong with these guys. Number one, they're outsiders. It's a little bit racist, probably. They're not us. We don't like them. They're Jews. They don't even ask them. They don't find out if they've got a passport or a driver's license or anything like that. They just say, these guys are Jews. They're kind of wanting to rile up the people. They also say they're disturbing our city. Now, disturbing our city is a problem because Philippi is a Roman colony. And you want to be a peaceful Roman colony or you might lose that status, which takes away a lot of favorable trading and a lot of favor in the country and a lot of freedom. And so they're saying, you're disturbing our whole city by doing what? By simply dealing with our fortune-telling girl. A um, little bit of overstatement there. And then they say they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, they're saying they advocate really Judaism at this point. And they may have something there because Rome didn't like the Jewish religion. They didn't like monotheism. This is why they didn't have a synagogue. Probably this is why the people had to go out by a river in order to worship. And so they're saying, listen, you're, they're not worshiping the Roman gods, which were many. They're, they're advocating something against Rome. Verse 23, And the crowd, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Notice that Paul and Silas never get to answer the charges. They never get to respond. They never get to defend themselves. This is not a trial. It's not even a hearing. It's a mob rule kind of thing where the magistrates basically respond to the mob and do whatever it is they want done. And you wonder at this point, why don't Paul and Silas, why don't they stick up for themselves? Why don't they answer these charges? A couple possibilities. And see, either this is such a chaotic scene they're not able to. Maybe they feel like it wouldn't do any good. Or maybe 
maybe, or maybe they wanted to be silent just like Jesus was silent in his trial. Maybe they saw this as an opportunity to follow Jesus and to not stick up strongly for themselves. Maybe they didn't want to be troublemakers. Maybe they just wanted to be like Jesus. So they put him in prison, and this prison would not have been comfortable at all. They put him in the inner prison, which would be like a dungeon, and they chained them and put wooden stocks on them, which would have been like wooden restraints on their feet, and they were very likely chained to the wall. Now, in some cases, this apparatus was used to torture people, to actually stretch them. This is not a comfortable scene. They probably weren't being tortured at the time, but it's not like they just got to you know, go to bed like they do on Andy Griffith and Mayberry. If you haven't seen Mayberry, you need to see that. But it's not comfortable. It's not nice. It's very hard. It's very uncomfortable. And that's where they leave them. Verse 25. About midnight, probably because they couldn't sleep, right? It's midnight. It's not just as the sun goes down. They're up all night. There's no way to get comfortable. There's no way to sleep. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. Maybe that's what they were singing. I don't think it was written yet. Uh, or there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. I mean, that wasn't written either, but maybe, you know, who knows? They were singing something. They were singing something to praise God in prison. That's messed up. Don't you think? They're praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It sounds crazy. Shouldn't Paul and Silas be upset, discouraged, frightened, anxious, angry? They're not, all they did was deal with evil, and now they're suffering in jail for it. That doesn't seem right. It's not fair. They're suffering unjustly. But yet they're singing. They're literally singing in the chains. Literally singing in the chains. And the other prisoners were listening. Christian, follower of Jesus, know this. Everyone is watching you as you suffer. People around you are listening to you as you suffer. You see, how you receive suffering, especially unjust suffering, is a revealing commentary on what you believe about God and how much you love others. It tells the story of what I actually believe about God when I suffer. You see what someone's really all about when things don't go our way. You see, they didn't know. They didn't know what was about to happen. They knew that, I mean, certainly Paul had been um, tortured and had been badly treated before, but they didn't know. They knew that Jesus was crucified after something like that. They knew this, could, this may not go well at all. But they wondered, what about what happened after Jesus suffered? Was God about to do something amazing in this city? And they would have to be thinking, you know what? Even if we die, he's already saved us. 
He is already establishing churches in the region. The kingdom of God is already going forward. Lydia is already being saved. There's a church developing here in Philippi. God's purpose is being served, and we've been counted worthy to suffer. Maybe they're thinking Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask or think. What's amazing is God's people are suffering and they're singing. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. And the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You see, God took his followers singing in suffering and he added a supernatural occurrence. He took the witness of his people loving him in the midst of pain and he added a supernatural occurrence and something amazing was about to happen. um, See, that's what God does in the moment of suffering. He adds something amazing to do what only he can do. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and the prison doors were open, he drew the sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're still here. We're still here. You see, you see uh, jailers were often held personally responsible for those they were holding. And if you lost your prisoners, you often lost your life. And so the jailer is saying, look, I don't want to go through what the Romans are going to do to me. I'm just going to go ahead and take my life. I know my life is over. But Paul, Paul says, we're still here. I want to say, why are you still there? God has rescued you. He's opened the door. You can go. You can leave. But you see, freedom wasn't their goal. See, freedom from suffering was not Paul's goal. Freeing others from suffering and death through Jesus Christ was the goal. Paul was all about saving that jailer. They had no obligation to do it, but they risked their lives to save the jailer's life. They risked additional suffering in order to alleviate the jailer's suffering. Verse 29, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Now, let me pause there. You say, well, what does that mean, believe? Here's what it means. Believe in the whole person of Jesus. Trust in him to save you. His whole message is you cannot save yourself. I'm going to die and pay for that for you. Believe that. Repent of your sin and receive the gift of salvation. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in the household. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. See, willing, joyful suffering, coupled with the miraculous power of God, saved the jailer. So you know this, we can never save anybody on our own. It always takes a miraculous move of God. And if you think about how Paul did this and how he thought about it, he explains a lot of it in 2 Corinthians. And just one example is 2 Corinthians 4, 11, and 12. It says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. One of my preaching mentors and favorite professors, Dr. Stephen Smith, describes this passage this way. He says, it seems the success of Paul's ministry was directly related to the amount he was willing to suffer. Or to say it another way, there is a definite relationship between the suffering that Paul experienced and the spiritual vibrancy of the church. The more he suffered, the more they prospered. The more he died, the stronger they lived. The more he struggled, the more they were freed. The more he was deaf to the cries of his own flesh, the more they could hear the life-giving words. You see, there is a very strong connection between God's people being willing to suffer and the salvation of those who are far from God. There's a very strong connection between those two things. You see, that's the pattern of Jesus. The will is willingness to suffer saved us. And we're to live like Jesus. So how we respond to suffering says everything about our faith in Jesus. And it's interesting They chose to suffer. They chose to stay. And then to kind of seal this, the author Luke shares this one last bit of Scripture that really kind of of blows us away in what Paul was thinking. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men, who are, get this, Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them and asked them to leave the city. Paul's a Roman citizen. Silas is a Roman citizen. Here's what that means. It was illegal to beat a Roman citizen. They were not outsiders. They were actually insiders. They were Roman citizens, and Paul refused to invoke that. He refused to claim and assert his rights, and he chose to suffer. Take that in for just a moment. Why did he do this? Probably he didn't want the church to be known as troublemakers. Didn't want to be a problem, but probably more than anything, he chose to suffer because he knew it would be for the benefit of the church. He wanted to live like Jesus lived because you know what? Jesus could have called 10,000 angels, yet he suffered on purpose and he chose to suffer. See, the stunning reality is that Paul chose to suffer so that others could be saved. And God brought fruit of that through the jailer. You see, suffering always reveals our faith. Many of you probably saw this week that Elizabeth Holmes of of Theranos was sentenced to 11 years in prison. Theranos was a company that Elizabeth Holmes claimed would revolutionize blood testing. And it was supposed to be a machine that would be in a doctor's office and you could literally just put blood in and it would tell you whatever you wanted to know pretty much. And she raised millions of dollars and defrauded 
has defrauded people of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, to make this work. Some would say that that's pretty much what all Silicon Valley entrepreneurs do. They fake it until they make it. They claim it's going to do it while it's in development so they can raise money to develop it. And that's how they function. But the problem is, at some point, the technology actually has to work. And for Ms. Holmes, it never did. Matter of fact, the technology still doesn't exist. And she's been put in prison for it for 11 years. See, folks, at some point, our faith actually has to work. And that happens often in suffering. The question is, what does our suffering, our suffering reveal about the, about the faith we claim to have? What does it reveal? Do we suffer like everyone else in anger and frustration and anxiety and, oh, I can't believe this is happening. I don't know how this is going to turn out. That's how everyone suffers. If that's true, we, maybe we don't have the faith we claim to have. See, Paul is always looking for what is best for the church. He's always looking for how best to represent Jesus. See, as a church, we need to be known for demonstrating who Jesus is, not constantly asserting our rights. Sadly, so many times, outsiders see God's people suffer like everyone else. And I think we forget that there's a strong connection between God's people being willing to suffer and the outside world knowing Jesus. You know, I'm not saying that you should be a doormat for abuse. I'm not saying that at all. Some people say, well, so I'm in a bad situation. I'm being abused. No, you shouldn't. Jesus, if you watch his ministry, he was very careful. He managed his exposure to those who would harm him very carefully until it was time for the final sacrifice. He didn't let them throw him off that hill in Nazareth. He walked through them. He limited his exposure to Jerusalem, where his worst enemies were. He constantly retreated for prayer. You don't need to experience unneeded suffering. But when God's people resist or refuse or are angry about suffering, others are unable to see Jesus. Why are you suffering? It may be because others need to see Jesus in you, to see that he is enough. How you receive suffering is a revealing commentary on what you believe about God and how much you love others. Well, how do I do this? How do I, how do I sing in the chain, Steve? I mean, I want to encourage you to literally sing in the midst of your suffering. When you feel that strong fear or anxiety or the difficulty or the pain, I want to encourage you to sing out loud, literally. How great thou art. Can you do that? You say, that feels false. It feels forced. Listen, it'll help. Because what it does is begin to focus us back on Jesus and what he's already done. See, we need to be Jesus rather than try to convince people to follow Jesus. We need to hurt so others can heal. We need to do what is best for others rather than what is rewarded. In short, we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, you say, Steve, what, well, specifically, what do you mean by this? Well, you know what? You know what? Giving is a way to suffer for the sake of others. 
when you give to the church or you give to missions, you're saying, I, I want to give to people that can never possibly benefit me. I will never see those people in New Guinea and the Philippines. I will never meet those other churches that, are, that are, were started. I will never experience that. But you're suffering. You're saying, yes, I want to give something I could use to benefit me because I want to benefit others. So don't hesitate to give. Be generous. Another way you can do this is when God calls other people away. You know, when some people come to me and they go, you know, Steve, we, we're going to move. And my first reaction is, no! Well, usually, most people. Um, no, don't move. You can't do that. And I'm, a, I'm like, no. We actually, some of the people that we got to influence, God is sending somewhere else to be a blessing there. And that is super exciting. Same is true for children. Our kids live over 1,000 miles away. I'm praying for them to repent and come home. No, I'm not. I'm excited that God is using them literally around the world. See, that's a small degree of suffering, but it's saying I want what God wants more than I want what I want because I trust him because he's been so faithful to me. It's true with, with parenting, right? I mean, your kids don't preach it. You don't give them what they want. You give them what's best for them, right? Even though they... It may be easier just to give them what they want. I want to suffer so to do what's best for them. You know, it's really true in marriage as well. In marriage, it's easily to be offended. Oh, he didn't respect me. She didn't do what was best for me. I don't take that. What if you just took it like a man? What if you just loved him? What if you just loved her, even though it hurt? What if you just did what was best for your mate rather than what was always best for you? Let me ask you, what are your chains? What's that thing right now that you're worried about, that you're hurting about? Is it relational? Is it financial? These are tough times in a lot of cases. Rent's gone up by 20 to 40% this year. Inflation is incredibly high. People are struggling. Are you worried that God's going to provide? Can you sing in that pain? Maybe you're struggling with parents. Maybe you're struggling with children. Maybe you're worried politically. What's going to happen? Listen. There is nothing that should ever dampen our love and our joy in Jesus. There is nothing. Let's be known for singing in the chains. And you know what might happen? God might just shake this place. He might shake open the doors that are holding people back, and we might see an incredible revival. If God's people can get happy, even in uncertainty, even in suffering. Now, today you might say, you know, Steve, I, I don't know that God. I, that's, that's totally foreign to me. I've never known that kind of joy in Jesus. I want to encourage you today. He is knocking on your door right now, saying, I don't care if you've been coming to church your whole life, but if you have no joy in me, I don't know that you really know me. Maybe you've never gotten to know him. Today can be your day. To simply say, God, I'm sorry. I repent of my sin, and I need to receive your gift of salvation. Would you come into my life? Some of you may, may need to say, you know, God, I need to repent of being unhappy and suffering. I need to repent of being worried that you're not going to come through. 
I need to repent of not celebrating all the things that you've already done. Oh, don't miss that. He is an amazing God. And he has done phenomenal things. If you know him, if you're a follower of his, you understand that there are millions of people who have no opportunity to know him. We have the privilege of knowing him and of investing in others to know him. Don't miss that. Would you bow with me? Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.